Greg has been a pastor for 38 and a half years. Greg and Lori have been married for 40 years. They are testimonies of God's grace and goodness, and they have held fast to the truth of God's word. And today, Greg's going to be preaching to us from Joshua 1.8 regarding meditation on God's word. Last week, last week we finished with an emphasis on the necessity of trusting the Lord, trusting Jesus in every moment of life in these next two weeks with a focus on prayer and today with a particular focus on meditation. So prepare your hearts. Ask the Lord to, to give us ears to hear and eyes to see as, as Greg comes and preaches to us. So Greg, come preach God's word. Thanks, brother. Well, it is a joy to be here in sunny Southern California because uh, somebody did text me from back home this morning. There's like five foot snow piles and uh, it, w it was uh, a little br more brisk. Uh, I do want to invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Joshua, either in your Bibles or your electronic devices. We're going to be giving our attention to that one verse in particular, Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. And as you're making your way to that text, I, I, I want to take the opportunity uh, to say what a, a blessing it is to be with you today. I believe it was in early 2016 that I participated in a week-long training exercise with a group of Sovereign Grace uh, pastors. Um, we were being trained to serve as coaches for future Sovereign Grace Church planters, and in this training time, I was paired up with this hipster pastor from Orange, California, by the name of Eric Terbedsky. <laughs> you thought I was going to say Kyle. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we spent hours together practicing coaching one another. We, we were sharing real ministry challenges and and then uh, helping each other to come up with gospel-centered objectives and measurable things that we could do to bring resolution to these kinds of challenges. And I specifically remember that there was one main thing on Eric's mind. It was the topic we kept coming back to again and again and again. And it was the possibility of a church plant in Santa Ana. And whether or not this guy, Kyle, was, was the guy. And uh, so here we are. Uh, we, we worked on Eric's thought process just back and forth this way and that way for hours. And it is rather remarkable to me that now these years later I've, to see the fruit of those conversations uh, with my own eyes and the answer to, our, to those prayers. I also find it remarkable that um, as I reflect on the beginning of the church that that I pastor, Emmaus Road Church of Sioux Falls, we, were, we planted nine years ago. Um, at the very, very beginning, there was a sibling group, a brother and uh, two sisters, and uh, they were from Seward, Nebraska. They played an unusually vital part in launching our church. Cameron and Emily and Allie Brooks. Cameron has since gone to seminary, moved on in his respective calling. Emily and her family remain very much at the center of 
our church and leadership of our church, and I have heard from reliable sources that it, this is probably going to make you all sad, but Allie, uh, who has repeatedly re expressed how dear all of you are to her, she was back in Sioux Falls just this past week interviewing for a new job, and I, w I think we might win this one. <laughs> Sorry about that, but, uh, but you, know, you know, it really is an expression of the beauty of the partnership and interdependence cross-pollination that we share uh, as a family of churches, and it is very, very, very sweet and sometimes bittersweet, right? Um, which uh, it is a means by which God communicates His presence and His power and in rich and resourceful ways um, to each one of us. And, and it is uh, to another of those means that God uses to communicate His life and presence and grace to us that I want to draw your attention this morning. Um, I, I realize that just looking at me, uh, it, it could go without saying, but um, maybe for some of you it would be a shock. I, I used to be a competitive sprinter. I, I, I was pretty fast back in the day. Um, my sister, my older sister on the other hand, she has competed in, oh, at least a half a dozen marathons in Minnesota. And so if she was running a marathon, I, I would follow um, especially those Twin Cities events. And you know, the, the, these would be uh, races where there would be somewhere between 18,000, 20,000 runners, 18,000 brave, motivated, skinny, overachieving, masochistic people. Uh, just, just think Kyle. You know, the <laughs> And, and, and even though um, upper Midwest folk tend to be on the more reserved side, there, there were still a few participants that weren't exactly ordinary. You, you will appreciate this as I'm, as I'm at the starting line. There's a, there is one guy who has this massive foam sombrero. That, that might be great for running in Santa Ana, but in Minnesota you would expect Viking horns. There's, a, there is a, there's another guy who had this full cow costume, you know, utter and all. And, um, and then there was a group of about a dozen people, they were all draped together in a special outfit so that they could run as a human caterpillar. And uh, so the starting line is quite a sight, and uh, there, there's the dairy cow man laughing, you know, fist pumping everybody, working the crowd, and, you know, the, the sombrero guy, is, that thing's doing the wave, and, and this caterpillar is just, well, <laughs> of, of the caterpillars that I've seen, it, it was far more energetic than would be fitting for a caterpillar. So the race begins, and, and this, you know, not being a marathoner, um, Kyle could probably speak more to this, but that first phase of a marathon, might you could call it the pleasure stage, right? It, it, at that point, running is fun, adrenaline is pumping, heads are clear, bodies are loose, sun is shining, birds are singing, you're one with the cosmos, <laughs> functioning like a well-oiled machine. And how long that pleasure stage lasts depends on, on the runner's conditioning, right? And, but after the initial rush of excitement wears off, 
the middle miles of the marathon, as I understand, become a grind. And then there's a third phase. After the grind just comes flat out torture. The temptation to stop for many is overwhelming. A runner's feet protest vigorously knifing pain is stabbing their calves and muscle thigh muscles are cramping lungs seem like they're filled with burning coals runners refer to this as hitting the wall and uh, to hit the wall and keep going is the ultimate test for a runner races are won or lost completed or abandoned at the wall and it was here, in this last third, of, uh, that watching that race got most interesting. Mr. Mr. Dairy Cow wasn't laughing anymore. He wasn't waving, fist-pumping anymore. He was, he was kind of creeping along. <laughs> uh, and the human caterpillar was collectively hanging over a fence, retching. And at the finish, people just came dribbling in one at a time. Some of them didn't make it at all. Um, the start of the race is enjoyable, easy. Finishing a marathon is hard work. Finishing well, that's glory. And finishing well is what counts. The capacity to finish well is what the biblical writers referred to as perseverance. Now, perseverance is, it's not simply this, uh, it's not a simple solution to every hard thing that we face. We all have limits, and, and the mere desire to endure, like 38 years of pastoral ministry, it by itself will not transcend. The ability to complete a marathon well requires training. It requires hours, days, weeks of habitual exercise. To finish the Christian life well, that is sanctified and besetting sins, crucified and the character of Jesus amplified, this requires training. And the training requires habits. Habits that seem hard at first, but habits that once developed position us into the flow of God's transforming grace. Habits of grace that once learned and regularly practiced empower us to finish our respective course to the glory of Jesus. December 31st, for example, I finished reading the Bible all the way through for the 40th consecutive year. Now, <laughs> I remember the first year, 1982, I, I, I thought, he's like, is this even possible? Now, considering it as a challenge, it just doesn't even cross my mind. <laughs> so imagine habits of grace practiced year in and year out, what the Lord might do in your life. Imagine what sins might diminish. Imagine what spiritual breakthroughs could happen. Imagine what power 
might be displayed as you draw closer and closer to the finish line of your life. Well, today I'd like to introduce you, or maybe reintroduce you, uh, possibly, to the habit of biblical meditation. And when I, when I say biblical meditation, I am not referring merely to Bible reading. I'm referring to meditating, that is, pondering and contemplating and thinking and considering deeply about God and all that He has said and revealed in His Word. And so the starting point here this morning will be Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. And, and as his mentor Moses died, this is what God said to Joshua. Joshua 1.8 This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. May God bless His Word. Now, whenever we talk about so-called habits, the habits that we practice, the habits of grace that position us to experience more and more of God's presence, it's always necessary to remind ourselves that, that there is nothing that we can do to merit God's grace or cause His grace to flow into our lives. David Mathis, in his very helpful book, Habits of Grace, I think he's quoting John Piper when he writes, I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a faucet, but I don't make the water flow. So it is for the Christian with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favor of God flow, but He has given us circuits and to connect and pipes to open expectantly. And, and biblical meditation is one of those conduits by which we can routinely avail ourselves of those paths of blessing or neglect them to our detriment. So my outline here today falls under four headings. The value of biblical meditation, the nature of biblical meditation, the subject matter for biblical meditation, and then the practice of biblical meditation. So, so first of all, the value, the, the excellence, if you will, of biblical meditation. Why is regular meditation on what God has communicated in His Word so, so important, so necessary, so excellent? Well, in terms of spiritual life, it's the difference between prosperity and poverty. It's the difference in our spiritual life between strength and weakness, vibrancy and frailty. 
It's the difference between substance and superficiality. Joshua 1.8 says, Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. It should be obvious that the promise held out here is not some guarantee of money or victory. The blessings are spiritual. Spiritual in nature. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 1, verse 3, the blessed person is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So, Biblical meditation awakens the spirit of the lethargic. It energizes the soul of the weary. It lifts the spirit of the downcast. And if we don't practice this habit, the best that we can hope for is a weak, disordered, and more than likely sin-filled life. When the Lord communicated himself to Joshua to encourage him for this this task of conquering the promised land, he didn't discuss military strategies or battle plans. Rather, God told Joshua that, that his greatest need, your greatest need as you go in and take this land, is to live life meditating on God's word. Why would that be helpful? Well, it's because God's Word is the substance of our communion with God. It's because biblical meditation works in us a healthy reverence for God. And reverential fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Oh, wisdom is so crucial in going into battle. Biblical meditation engenders peace in God's providence and hope in the, for the fulfillment of God's promises. Biblical meditation engenders love for God in Christ. Biblical meditation weakens love for sin and in, uh, weakens love for sin and intensifies hatred for sin. It strengthens, it nourishes all the best parts. One Puritan author writes, Little meditation makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and of little use for others. Which part of that would not be significant and useful for a military commander? Or for men and women in Santa Ana, California. This, I believe, is why our flesh, our nature, and Satan himself opposes biblical meditation like nothing else. Thomas Watson writes, the devil is an enemy of meditation. He knows that meditation is a means to compose the heart and to bring it into a gracious frame. Satan, this is a This is a a compelling statement. Satan is content that you should be hearing and praying Christians so that you not be meditating Christians. If If you'd be fine with just reading and praying 
cool. But meditating? Now we're, in, now we're a threat. He can stand your small shot, says Watson, provided you do not put in this bullet. So in times past, biblical meditation was considered to be the supreme habit of grace. And, and listen, it, it's, it's neglect. The neglect of biblical meditation was considered to be the cause of every sin and of all punishment. It was and remains the habit of all habits, the exercise of all exercises. So, what exactly is it? If that's its value and its, its excellence, then what is the nature or essence of biblical meditation? The, the first thing that we can say about it is that Meditation in and of itself, it's really something that requires little help in defining. And that's because we just do it so naturally. And we do it all the time. Most simply, to meditate is to think. Meditating is imagining or contemplating or considering, or remembering, or brooding over something. In Psalm 39, verse 3, David writes, My heart became hot within me as I mused the fire burned. <laughs> Meditating is musing, and musing has an effect. You think about something long enough, and your emotions are sure to follow. What happens when you rehearse in your mind some injustice or some offense committed against you? Like David, our hearts become hot. What happens when you nurse some lustful imagination? Your heart becomes hot. Why do we lose our temper? Why do we fall in love? Why do spouses have affairs? Why do businesses get started? Why do churches get planted? Why are some people sullen and discouraged? Why are others inspired to achieve great things? Strong actions flow from strong affections that rise from musing. I've been musing over this comment by a 19th century pastor by the name of William Bates. He writes, what is the wickedest part of a man's life? It is his vain thoughts. Yeah, the, the darkest, most sin-filled part of our lives are empty, unfruitful, unhelpful thoughts. <laughs> Have you ever considered the 
most potentially dangerous part of your life is your vain imaginations, you know, empty fantasies. Oh, if I only won the lottery, or you know, uh, unrealistic daydreams, or 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 the thoughts which with which we assuage our anxieties in the middle of the night, things that keep you awake. What do you, where does your mind go? Meditation. It's really quite common. It means to think about or to dwell on. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul writes, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, what? Think. Think about these things. <laughs> Biblical meditation means to give careful thought to pure and praiseworthy things. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the, the key to not growing weary and faint-hearted is meditation on Him and what He endured. Consider, direct your mind's attention to an object and then immerse yourself in that thought. Jonathan Edwards was said to be able to take any subject and imagine it, consider it, and contemplate it in, in like a 360 degree kind of a way. So he, he would mentally, you know, he'd get something in his head and then he'd just kind of mentally walk around it and ro rotate it and, and uh, ponder it from every angle. You know, we have this capacity when it comes to certain things. <laughs> There's certain things that we can we can just analyze beyond comprehension. <laughs> According to Luke chapter 2, verse 19, it was Mary who treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Here, here's just a couple of examples how theologians from the 17th century understood the nature of biblical meditation. This is, this is Thomas Watson. He writes... Meditation is a holy exercise of the mind whereby we bring the truths of God to remembrance and do seriously ponder them and apply them to ourselves. Or Isaac Ambrose, he writes, Meditation is a deep and earnest musing upon some point of Christian instruction to the strengthening up against the flesh, world, and devil, a steadfast bending of the mind. <laughs> That's a great phrase. A steadfast bending of the mind to some spiritual matter, discovering of it with ourselves till we bring the same to some profitable issue. You know, we don't talk that way these days, do we? <laughs> but perhaps, 
perhaps more significantly, that kind of earnest musing in, in our age of information overload, the, the endless media saturation, it, you know, it would be nearly inconceivable to be focused on one thing with earnest music. The, the TikTok feed, you know, a video content, content it's, it's changing every 7 to 12 seconds. It has trained, it has conditioned an entire generation with an attention span where quote-unquote steadfast bending of the mind, it's like nearly impossible. Even the analogies offered by contemporary theologians seem as challenging as running a marathon. Donald Whitney writes, hearing God's word is like one dip of the tea bag into the cup. Some of the tea's flavor is absorbed in by the water, but not as much as would occur with a more thorough soaking of the bag. Biblical meditation is like immersing the bag completely and just letting it steep until all the rich tea flavor has been extracted. Such is the nature of, and the challenge, of biblical meditation. And really apart from a miracle of God's grace, the grace that moves us to habits of grace, the miracle of a regenerate heart, one will not discover the kind of joyful affection in it as experienced by the composer of Psalm 119, which you heard just a few moments ago. Psalm 119.97 says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. <laughs> Psalm 119, verse 148, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. There's such desire, such hunger and thirst for it. Another 19th century pastor writes, What greater delight than to think on that God in whom we doth most delight. Though it be hard in regard of its practice, yet it may be sweet and delightful in regard to its profit. It is not a hard work for a man to be digging in the mines, digging up for silver, and yet delightful in regard to the profit. We, we put up with all kinds of hassles and headaches if we want something <laughs> if we really really want something we put up with backbreaking exertion if there's if there's gold in there jewels in there treasure in there even the most even the most worrisome distractions are no match for a heart made new psalm 119 verse 23 says even though princes sit plotting against me your servant will meditate on your statutes. That's a, that's a, a, a very remarkable thought. You, you, if, you, if you are worried about what people think of you, and somebody's out there doing you harm, and somebody's burned you, that's a big distraction. But, but the psalmist says, even that, eh, that's a nit. I'm going I'm to meditate on your promises. And so we pray to God 
Psalm 119, verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and then I'll meditate on your wondrous works. Which leads to, then, the subject matter of biblical meditation. God and his wondrous works. And the, the most obvious subject is all that God has communicated of himself and his doings in his word. Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So the, the subject matter for biblical meditation is all that God has communicated of himself, all, the, all those wondrous works that he has done, all the, the marvelous things that he has said, and all that he has made, him, all the ways that he has made himself known to us as he has revealed it in Scripture. So it is this book and all the storehouses of treasure revealed in God's Word. That is the subject matter of our pondering, our musing, our thinking, our considering, our remembering that does so much good in our lives. And the aim of it is so that God would stir up our affections and so as to direct and to govern all of our ambitions and desires. The goal is that God might set our hearts on fire so that we would cross the finish line free from besetting sins and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. So consider the vast ocean depths of material by which God's word might ravish our thoughts. God and all of his attributes, the person and the offices and the works of Jesus, the riches of the gospel and the glories of Calvary, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, the privileges, oh, the privileges of true believers. How about the benefits of trials and tribulations and how much good they accomplish in our lives? Again, it was the Puritans who emphasized, they emphasized certain biblical subjects more than others, and, and they did so with a view to engendering a, a, a care in persevering and doing all that is written in God's Word. And those subjects included things like the foolishness of sin and the consequences of sin. They, they, they included subjects that were designed really to, to restrain particular temptations to sin. They were, they were particularly devoted to careful thinking and remembering and pondering and considering eternity and the certainty of death and God's sure judgment as well as the glories of heaven and the, the sobering reality of hell. Puritan Nathaniel Renu writes, this is, he writes, no man ever yet fled from hell, but first fixed his thoughts in some proportion on it. No man will fly fast enough from this pit of perdition, this lake of fire, if he do not 
often look towards it and keep his eye upon it. So there's no sweeter prosperity, no no greater success than to gain that eternal inheritance, that eternal reward, the eternal pleasure to be had in heaven forever at God's right hand. Finally, and very briefly, um, the practice of biblical meditation. Oh man, there's so many things that could be said by way of application. Um, (laughs) Just in relationship to the phrase and the exhortation, to, to meditate day and night. Hmm. Let's just simply begin with what happens right here in this room on Sunday mornings for you. With the sermons that you hear preached from this pulpit week in and week out. I mean, I trust that it's apparent that your elders, pastors, give careful thought and serious attention to rightly handling and proclaiming God's Word. But what would it take for the Word that you hear preached here on Sunday morning to stay with you, like to remain with you, and have an enduring impact upon you? Can you remember what was preached last Sunday or the week before that? How how long does it stay? Educational psychologists tell us that if if we are introduced to a compelling thought and, and that subject, that thought, whatever it is, is not reflected on, is not applied, the introduction of the next compelling thought and subject cancels out the first one. So, Um, I think that probably is a a, a fair explanation as to why so much contemporary Christianity is really just doesn't do any good. (laughs) It's so thoughtless. It's so superficial. It's so self-absorbed. We hear a sermon on Sunday and then on Monday through Friday, we're listening to podcasts on our way to and from work, and then there's the Bible study that we go to on Tuesday, and then while you're working out at the gym, you know, listening to another sermon or two, or an audiobook or three, and of course then Twitter feeds this constant diet of news and more hot takes, and all of this, you know, it's just reinforced by this conviction that, that, the, that there's a virtue to just being so informed about everything. <laughs> there's no time to digest. Certainly there are professing Christians who are spiritually starving themselves to death, but there are so many others who just by endless, habitual consumption of one thing after another thing after another thing, there's just, there's just barely any digestion of any of it into our systems to do us good. So if this aging pastor could offer you one small practical exhortation, less is more. It was 350 years ago that another 
pastor by the name of James Usher wrote 350 years ago. He says, one hour spent thus, and he's, he's referring to meditation, meditating, digesting God's word. One hour spent thus is worth more than a thousand sermons. And this is no debasing of the word, but an honor unto it. In other words, one sermon digested <laughs> and assimilated into your system is worth more than a thousand things you're going to hear the rest of the week. Here, here's a rather useful bit of inspiration in an unexpected place. Genesis chapter 24 verse 63 says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. <laughs> Isaac went out to meditate in, in the field before evening. So, so when this patriarch aims to focus his mind's attention and his heart's affection on God and his word, he went out. He went out to a place where he would be undistracted. He went out where he would be undistracted at a time when his energy and his focus would be at their peak. Where's that and when is that for you? Where would that be? Where would you go where you could be undistracted? I, you know, I know that a lot of us have kind of gotten into the coffee shop with the earbuds listening to something so that we don't hear all the conversation going on around us and then we're trying to focus on devotions or whatever it is. And I'm wondering if, if that's the most useful time or place. Maybe. The saints of old believed that without meditation, the truths might be devoured, but not digested. And so when and where can you go back to God's word? Go back to God's word that you heard together here in this place. Where can you get that word? Go back to it again and again and again. If there's one habit, one exercise by which you will train yourself, position yourself in the path of God's law, a lavish and transforming grace. I, I would encourage you to go to the Lord for the skill of meditation in His Word, to practice. There, there's an art, and there is divine competency to it that you know, your pastors can organize and give attention to helping you get the content there, but none can teach you but God alone. Would you have that? Then go to God for it. And then you shall make your way prosperous. And then you shall gain the eternal finish line with good success. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, looking out and seeing the people here that you have gathered, formed into Cross of Grace Church, um, I know it is an exhibit. It's a, it's, it is a display of, of uh, the power of your word. The power of your word proclaimed. The power of your word feeding, and nourishing, and building, and establishing, strengthening, sustaining. I do pray, Father in heaven, for the word that comes forth from this pulpit week in and week out, that it would, it would run, it would be glorified, it would have an effect, it would bear fruit, it would get things done, it would not just be devoured, but it would be digested and productive. And I pray, Lord, that uh, um, through a habit like thinking and pondering and considering and musing and dwelling on and remembering that uh, through this great grace would be poured out upon this church, upon this, this group of people that they might run your race here in this city for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.